All right. You guys hear me? Good. <laughs> Good. All right. Now we're done. <laughs> we had South Park. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Is it me? to Mayus Road Church, and uh, welcome to our third week of Advent. You know, we began this series a couple weeks ago, and, th- and in this series we are answering the question, what child is this, and in, t- in anticipation for Christmas. And this morning, in answering that question, I'm going to be preaching on how this child is our great high priest. And my text this morning is going to be Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. So we go, go, if you would please turn with me there, I'll go ahead and read. Uh, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So reads the word of the living God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for bringing us together this Sunday. Lord, thank you for every person in this room that that belongs to you. Lord, we humbly submit to you. And Lord, may you teach us today. Lord, may you bring your word today. Lord, I pray that you may empower me because, Lord, apart from you, I can do nothing. I have no ability in myself to come up here and preach your word. So Lord, may you empower me through your Holy Spirit. And may your Holy Spirit work among us all. Convict us of sin and draw us to Christ. Draw us to our great high priest who has paved the way for us to come to you so that we can stand before the th- your throne. Worship you, Lord, and to find help, help when we're in need. To find grace. So Lord, thank you. Thank you for Christ in his life, and his death, burial, and resurrection, and now his work as high priest. Lord, for your glory and your glory alone, in Jesus' name, amen. Now, it seems that a common trait among mankind is our desire to want to look back. We love to reminisce about the old days. We want to go back to simpler times. When you weren't in college and when it wasn't finals week and you 
when you forgot to study the night before final, and then you begin to ask yourself, why did I ever move out of my parents' house? (laughs) Oh, I wish I could be a kid again, when my only care in the world was, what kind of imaginary world will I enter into today? Well, at least that was my experience as a child. No finals, no essays, no bills, no future plans to worry about. Just the joy of being a kid. We always just want to go back. The problem with that is that when we dwell too much on the past, we forget what we have here in the present. The people that the book of Hebrews was written to had the same problem. These Christians, they had the reality and substance of all that the Old Testament pointed to. See, they, they had what the patriarchs longed to see in their day. They had the promised Messiah who fulfilled the entire Old Testament and purchased salvation for his people. And, and yet these Christians, who clearly had a substantial knowledge of the Old Testament, wanted to go back to the old ways of Judaism. They wanted to continue partaking in the ceremonies and the offering of sacrifices in the temple. They had Jesus, but they wanted to go back. But why? Well, one of the greatest causes of this is that there was great persecution at this time for Christians. So if they, if they wanted to go back to Judaism, they wouldn't have to face persecution. They wouldn't have to deal with the consequences of following Christ, the cost that it will take. They could have a little bit of Jesus and Judaism if they just went back. And we can't say that we completely understand this in, our, in this day and age because thank the Lord that we have the freedom to come and worship on Sunday and to profess faith in Christ without imprisonment or death. But we are still living in a nation that primarily hates Christianity. And going back to our old lives, going back to who we were before Christ, may be a temptation for some of us. And... And with that reality, we need to ask ourselves, is Jesus enough for me? That was the question that these Christians were asking themselves. And the answer that the author gives is this, that because Christ has reconciled us to God, we can hold fast to our confession of faith. He exhorts them more than once to hold fast to their confession. And today, we must hold fast to our confession of faith Hold fast to Christ because he holds fast to us. My proposition for you this morning is this, that this child is our great high priest who has reconciled us to God. Now, the office of a priest is mostly foreign to our 21st century culture. If not foreign, it's misunderstood. And because of that, it would take me multiple sermons to actually explain all the life the entire life and duties of a priest. So I'm going to briefly explain what they did and what their significance was among the people of Israel. Now, in the Levitical priesthood, men were appointed as priests to intercede between the people and God. See, they were of a specific lineage which began with Aaron and continued on through the tribe of Levi. These men would be, of, be the ones who would offer up sacrifices to the pe- for the people to God. And there are many different sacrifices that they were required to offer to God to be made throughout the entire year. But once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest, of which there was only one, would enter the tent of meeting that signified the dwelling place of God, and that he would offer a sacrifice for both his sins and the sins of Israel. And in the entrance of this tent of meeting was a veil, or a curtain, which was there to separate God from the sin of the people. 
And it was important that God's presence behind the veil would not be tainted or violated, or there would be great consequences. And we see an example of that in Leviticus 10, when Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, violated God's regulations for offering sacrifices to him. And in response, God put them to death as punishment. See, God takes his dwelling place seriously. But why? Why was there a need for priests and a high priest? Why do we need an entire book called Leviticus filled with regulations on how, what, and when to offer sacrifices to God? Well, I would propose to you that, for one, it is because of the infinite holiness of God. And two, it is because of the infinite unholiness of man. 1 Timothy 6.16 tells us that God is so glorious that he dwells in unapproachable light. God says in Isaiah 55, verses 8 through 9, that for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. In Habakkuk 2.20, he says that, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Now let all the earth keep silence before him. Isaiah 5.16 says, behold, or, sorry, But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. And then in Romans 11, 33, 36, we read, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And then it is in Isaiah 6 where the angels are crying out to God saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And in reference to this verse in Isaiah 6, God's holiness is is the only descriptive phrase or word that in all of scripture that is repeated to the third degree. See, when words in scripture are repeated, they are repeated in order to show the significance of that word or phrase. So when a word is repeated to the third degree, we better be paying attention. Now, holiness simply means to be set apart. See, there is none like our God. No one can compare. He is set apart from all of creation because he is creator of all things and he is sovereign ruler over all things. And because of this reality of God's holiness, there is enmity between God and man. Our nature is directly and greatly opposed to God. There is no good in man to be able to even stand in his presence, nor is there even a desire in natural man to come before the presence of God. The natural man is dead in sin, Ephesians 2.1. He's a child of wrath, Ephesians 2.3. He's enslaved to sin, Romans 6.17. Lover of darkness, John 3.19. Enemies of God, Romans 5.10. And I could go on and on, but the point is that God is holy and we are not. And that is a great problem for mankind. How can man dwell with God? Well, God fixes that problem. We know that man has no ability or desire to make himself right before God. And that is why in Ephesians 1.4, Paul says of God that he chose us in him, being Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. We are chosen in Christ. 
It is always God who acts first. It is God who chose us in Christ. It is God who predestined us. It is God who saved us. It is God who made us alive. It is God who set us free. It is God who calls. It is God who regenerates. It is God who justifies, adopts, sanctifies, and preserves us for all eternity. It is all of God. That's why 1 Corinthians one thirty says that it is because of him being God that you are in Christ Jesus. And here in Ephesians 1.4, it is God who chooses us in Christ to be holy and blameless. We were chosen by the only holy and blameless one so that we would be a holy and blameless people. And then we read also in 1 Peter 2 that we're in, uh, 1 Peter 2, where Peter takes the same phrase that is used for Israel in the Old Testament and applies it to the church, saying, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. See, we are a holy nation. God has set us apart. And this is something we could not accomplish on our own. But how is this so? How can unholy man be called holy by God? Well, since man is sinful and cannot make himself right before God, man needs an advocate. He needs a mediator, someone to reconcile him to God, to reconcile us to God. And since the Levitical priesthood was just a type and shadow of what would come, there is no immediate access for man to come to God. Man needs a mediator to intercede on, this, on his behalf. But what kind of mediator? Well, man needs a mediator who, is, who makes perfect those who draw near to him. And where would this priest come from? Well, he couldn't come from the order of Aaron because that was not a perfect priesthood. He would have to come from another order. Now look ahead with me in, uh, in our text this morning to Hebrews 5.6. Now while quoting Psalm 110, the author says, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You see, the author here is applying Psalm 110 to Christ. And when Christ has come after the order of this man named Melchizedek. Now who was Melchizedek? Well, the author of Hebrews goes on to speak much of him, primarily in chapter 7, but he begins talking about him in chapter 6, verse 20. But beginning in verse 19, he says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Christ has become an eternal high priest after the order of this man named Melchizedek. And he goes on in chapter 7 to describe who this man is, saying, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High King, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See, his writing here is commentary on Genesis 14, 18 through 20, where we see this story unfold. And based on this text, we have a brief enough understanding of who Melchizedek is. One, he is a king, king of Salem, and in the Hebrew, that means peace. He is also a priest of God. But there is uniqueness in this priestly office because, for one, he doesn't descend from the tribe of Levi. 
but he came before Israel's time. So why did he receive this title of, high, of priest of the Most High God? Well, let's continue through the verse. Look down at verse 2 where it's, of chapter 7, where it says that Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. So this was a sign of respect and honor. And then the rest of the verse says that this king is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Now, the Hebrew word for righteousness is tzedek, and then the Hebrew word for king is melech. So Melchizedek means king of righteousness. So then he continues. He's also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, what does this mean? Well, I'm, I will say, first of all, it does not mean that Melchizedek was eternal. No, we have to focus on the phrase resembling the son of God. The author's whole purpose in including this entire chapter is to present him as a type of Christ. The focus is not necessarily on Melchizedek as it is on Christ. So this text is showing that this man is a type of the one who will come as a priest after his order. And Melchizedek resembles the Son of God. He is not eternal, but what is being said is that this man, hold, this man had no genealogy that is known to man. That is how the readers would have understood this. Because you see, the Jewish nation was big on genealogies, and they believed that there was only one priestly line. But the author here is reminding them that all, or reminding them that at one point there was another priest who even came before Aaron. So if there was another priest, then there can still be one now. And in this text, we can see a few reasons as to how Melchizedek's priesthood is greater than the Levitical priesthood. See, the line of Levi was subject to a few things. One, it was subjected to um, heritage, meaning that it, he, the priest had to come from the line of Levi. Two, it was also pro, um, prohibited royalty, meaning there was no king that could have had the office of priest. And then three, the, the high priests were not eternal. Levitical priests died off and could not live on forever. Now, in comparison, the Melchizedek priesthood did not require any descent by birth, and Melchizedek was a king, and Melchizedek lives on forever. Now, who else fits this description? Well, Jesus Christ. Because Christ, not referring to the incarnation, but the eternal Son of God, does not have an earthly heritage. And Jesus Christ, he rules as king over all things. And might I add that Melchizedek being king of righteousness in the city of peace is a type of Christ's work on the cross. And that Christ has obtained perfect righteousness that he has imputed to us so that we can have peace with God. So Jesus is not of earthly descent. He is, he is a king. And thirdly, he remains forever. Now let's not get distracted and not get what is being said here. The focus is not on Melchizedek, but it's on Christ and him taking the office of this priesthood after the right... After after the, this king of righteousness who was a type and shadow of Christ. And so there is a need for another priesthood because perfection could not be obtained by the Levitical priesthood. But instead, Hebrews 10, Hebrews 10 1 says that the law was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. He continues to say that the law can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. He also says that these sacrifices were a reminder of the sins of the people. So this was the purpose of the law, to be a shadow 
that pointed to the one true sacrifice who would deal with sin once for all. There was no perfection that could have been attained, but only a reminder of sin. And if perfection could have been attained, then there would be no need for another priesthood. But since perfection cannot be attained through the Levitical priesthood, we, Christ has now come as a mediator of this better covenant. Now, I've attempted to give a brief overview and summary of the Levitical priesthood and Melchizedekian priesthood. And I did this so that we can have a foundation for understanding Christ's office as great high priest. Which leads me to my first point of my text this morning. My first point is this. That Jesus is a greater high priest. Look with, look with me at verse 14 of chapter 4. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So since then, that's referring back to all that has come before. And if we read all that has come before, we see in this chapter, we see um, all that comes before here in this chapter, we would see that the author has taken a detour from chapter chapter 2, verse 17. And to sum up all that he has said, he says that, Christ had to become like us in the incarnation in order for him to be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. And at the end of that verse, he says that as a high priest, he has made propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, propitiation means to satisfy God's justice. See, God's wrath was upon us, but Christ took that wrath and bore it upon himself on the cross. This is the substitutionary work of Christ on our behalf. And when we should be faced with condemnation, he was condemned. When we should have been judged, he was judged. When we should have been forsaken by God, he was forsaken in our place. He was our substitute and he became a propitiation for us. So back to chapter 4, we see that since then we have a great high priest. Jesus has received a title that no other priest has received. And that is the title of great high priest. The whole premise of Hebrews is that Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater than the angels, greater than Moses. He is greater than the law. And in this section, we see that Christ is greater than the Levitical priesthood and the law. All right. But how is Jesus greater? Well, we have to remember that the priests interceded before God on behalf of the people. And these priests were not perfect. They were sinners, and because of that, they were required to offer sacrifices for first their own sins and then the sins of the people. So the priests were not sanctified, sinless beings, but they were chosen from among men, so they were just as, as corrupted with sin with their sin nature as the rest of mankind. And the only difference being, however, is that they were held to a higher standard of obedience because they were the ones that were to go before the presence of the Lord and offer sacrifices. And sin had to be atoned for. It has to be atoned for it. And sin was atoned for by the shedding of blood, which resembled the giving of life. Life had to be sacrificed as payment because the wages of sin is death. And Hebrews 9.22 says that the author author reminds us in Hebrews 9.22 that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. But there's a problem. So just a little bit later, the author writes, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. It is impossible. So what was the point of Levitical priesthood? Well, Romans 3.20 says that for the works of the law, no, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law 
was given to show the character of God and show how we fall short of his standard of righteousness. It was through the law that we see our sin. And through the Levitical priesthood, the blood that was spilled from the sacrifices was, spi- was spilled to satisfy God's justice. Because blood is required to be spilled for the forgiveness of sins. However, those sacrifices were not perfect. Nor did they make perfect those whom it covered. Sin was not taken away by those sacrifices. But those sacrifices were a shadow of what was to come. They were a type of the sacrifice that would be once for all time. And the sacrifice that would make all those who draw near to it perfect forever. The law was meant to point us to the one who will keep it perfectly and satisfy God's justice on our behalf. And that sacrifice is seen at the cross of Christ. Because Christ is greater. Because Christ is supreme. Because Christ is our great sacrifice. He is a sufficient sacrifice. A perfect sacrifice. And not only has he made atonement by the, not by the blood of bulls and goats, but he has made atonement with his own blood. And he is now the one who sits at the right hand of God the Father and intercedes on behalf of those whom he has bought. So back to our text, we have a great high priest. He belongs to us and us to him. And there is no other mediator between God and man but the man, Jesus Christ. He is the only one who fulfills this great role. And what a great high priest he is who would go before us and offer up himself so that we can come to the Father, so that we can enter in the holy place and be before the throne of God. Not with a righteousness of our own that comes through the works of the law, but righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness of our great high priest. And he goes on to explain that what, why it is that Christ is greater. Well, it, not only is he a perfect sacrifice, but Christ has passed through the heavens. Now, what does this mean? Well, as I mentioned before, under the law, the high priest would once a year go into the presence of the go out of the presence of the people, and he would enter behind a veil or a curtain into the presence of God. And it was worth noting that it was the same veil in the temple that was torn in two when Jesus gave up his life on the cross in Matthew 27. See, this was to signify, as Hebrews 9.12 says, that Christ has entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. See, when Jesus offered up his life as sacrifice, that veil was torn down and man can now come to God through Jesus Christ. The veil has been torn. We can go before the presence of the Lord. So now back to our text, we see that Jesus has passed through the heavens. He's entered the holy dwelling place of the Father. And this Jesus is the Son of God. He has not merely received this title, but he has always had this title. See, Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. This is referring to his deity as the second person of the Trinity. And this is not to say that Christ is a created being, but actually the opposite. Because you see, when Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, the Jewish leaders sought to arrest him and have him killed because he was making himself equal with God. So Jesus is just as much, just as much God the Father, or God as the Father is God and the Holy Spirit is God. They are one in substance, power, and eternity, eternally existing in perfect unity and self-sufficiency. Now, in light of this, since we have a great high priest who has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, he exhorts us to, he says, let us hold fast to our confession. This is an exhortation for these believers that they are to hold fast to their confession of faith in Christ. Because, like I said, they were wanting to go back. They, they wanted to go back to the old ways, go back to Judaism. The author is saying, no, don't go back, but hold fast to Christ. 
And this exhortation goes to us as well. We must hold fast to Christ because he is our great high priest. His work is complete. So why would we not want to go? Why would we not want to hold fast? Why would we want to go back? Why would we neglect such a great salvation that that has been accomplished for us? This child has died for us. He has risen for us and is now interceding for us. So we must not go back to our old ways. We must not go back to our sin, to a life trying to earn favor with God. See, this was me. I, I lived most of my younger life trying and trying to gain merit before God. I knew that what Jesus had done, but it never went from my head to my heart. I lived in fruitless religiosity, trying to be good enough for God, but always finding myself falling short. It was not until I tasted and saw the glorious gospel, when I saw and felt the unbearable weight of my sin, and I saw the precious truth of the substitutionary work of Christ on my behalf. That is when it penetrated my heart and broke me, broke me to the point where I had no other plea. I had nowhere else to run but to Jesus Christ. I was no longer living to gain favor with God because Christ had already done that on my behalf. I no longer had reason to look back because my Savior had taken my sin. He had satisfied God's justice on my behalf. And maybe this is you today. Maybe you haven't truly seen the glories of the gospel. Maybe you are working and working to make yourself right before God, but always falling short. And if that is you, then the only remedy for a self-righteous life is trusting in the only perfect, true righteousness, that being the righteousness of Christ. Look to him, because all of those who do will stand no longer condemned. Because Jesus drank every drop of God's wrath that was reserved for you. Every last drop. So hold fast to your confession of faith. Hold fast to Christ. But do not forget that our holding fast to our confession is not what saves us. But it is Christ's hold on us that saves us and keeps us. It is Christ who will never lose any of his sheep because he is the good shepherd. And just as John says in John 6.44, No one can come to the Son unless the Father who sent him draws them. And all those who are drawn to the Son by the Father will be raised up on the last day. Christ will save all those whom are given to him by the Father. So you're coming to Jesus and your confession of faith is not what holds you. It is not your effort because if it was up to you, you would surely fall away. But it is Christ who holds you. It is Christ who holds fast to his redeemed church. It is Christ and not us. Now on to my second point. Jesus is a sinless high priest. One of the most unique characteristics of Christ being a high priest is that he is without sin. No other priest could say that of themselves. The author begins in verse 15 saying that, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. It can often seem that God is distant from us. We may even uh, say that God can't understand what we're going through. And to propose such a question may seem ridiculous, but our, um, um, but our sinful, finite minds often drift in that direction. But Christ completely destroys that notion because it is this child who was born in the humblest of situations. It is this child who grew in stature and knowledge. Christ became Emmanuel, God with us. He came to dwell with his people and be like his people. He became a man. And his human nature was no different than ours except him being without sin. 
He became like us to the point that he can sympathize with what we go through. See, the word used for sympathize is actually a word that is transliterated from Greek to English. The Greek word is sympatheo, and it literally means to suffer with or to be affected in the same way. See, because Jesus is able to not only have knowledge of what we go through, but he is able to know, know through experience because he went through everything we do. He was made like us in every way. So when we suffer, when we feel like we've lost everything, when we are tempted beyond what we can handle, we have hope knowing that Christ knows what we are going through because he has endured it too. But he endured it without sin. And he was tempted in every way but remained sinless. Now if we look back at uh, chapter 2, verse 18, it says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So Christian, when you face temptation, which you will and do every single day, you can know that you have a high priest who has not only atoned for your sin, but he will help you in your time of need to endure and resist temptation. What an amazing truth that God would help us when we are in need. Because we can't help ourselves. And he should leave us to ourselves, but he does not. But instead promises that he will give us a way to endure temptation. And he empowers us through his Holy Spirit to live a life of obedience for his glory. And it is in, through the Holy Spirit who we have to rely on every day to live a life worthy of the gospel. To live a life to bring praise and honor and glory to Christ. So let us remember that our high priest sympathizes with us. This child sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. And this son of God is sinless and blameless. And that is why he is able to offer himself as a sacrifice without blemish, without defect, and without sin, so that our sins can be atoned for forever. Because if Christ was guilty of just one sin, he would not be a sufficient sacrifice for our sins. No, but he had to be perfect in every way. Jesus had to fulfill all righteousness, fulfill the entire law, so that we can come to him by faith and receive his righteousness. We have nothing in, our, in, of, in and of ourselves to hold claim to except our sin before God. There is no good in us, as Romans 3 says. But it was Christ who knew no sin, who became sin on our behalf so that we might be made the righteousness of God. See, he knew no sin, and he became sin for us. And now we can be declared righteous before a holy God. We who were once unholy, unrighteous, wicked, and vile are now holy, righteous, and blameless because of him who took our curse, who took our punishment. Oh, what a blessed Savior we have. Now on to my third point. Jesus is a gracious high priest. See, he is not only a great high priest, he is not only a sinless high priest, but he is a gracious high priest. Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, this is setting forth our second response that we are to have to the reality of our great high priest. We are to one, hold fast our confession. And now two, we are to come with confidence to the throne of grace. You could also say that we are to come boldly to this throne. This makes known to us the blessed provision that God has made for his people to come before him. That the author has already established that we have a great high priest who has paved the way for us to come to God. Now what amazing reminder we have here that we can come with boldness before him. 
This continues to add emphasis on how Christ is greater than the priests of Israel. Because Israel was confined to remain in the outer court and could not enter the Holy of Holies except for the one high priest who would enter once a year on the Day of Atonement. But now, but now all Christians, all Christians, whether weak, hurt, broken, tired, or weary, all Christians who were once far off, as Ephesians 2.13 says, have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. We have been brought near. We have access to the throne of God. And having this great high priest, how could we flee in fear? How can we turn away in impatience? How can we turn away from our profession of faith? When Christ has done all that is necessary to bring us to himself, to bring us to the throne. So let us not fear. Let us not cower. Let us hold fast to our profession. Let us persevere and fight the good fight of faith because Jesus Christ, our great high priest, is our peace. He is our redemption. He is our righteousness. He is our strength and our salvation. Oh, what a blessed privilege it is to be able to come and find help when we are in need. And it is not that there is merely just grace to be found on this throne, but it is a throne of grace. And yes, it is a throne. We don't have much of a concept of a throne in this day and age except for maybe what we see in movies or of ancient kings or rulers. We also tend to have a negative view towards the idea of a throne, of a king who rules over all the land and dictates all that goes on in his kingdom um, with no higher authority to live by. But that is one reason why we should not bring our preconceived ideas of, to Scripture, but allow Scripture to speak for itself. See, Christ, he sits on a throne. Christ is king over all, but he is a king of righteousness and peace. He is not a king of injustice, though. He will judge the wicked. He will judge the unbelieving. Justice will be done. But those who come to him in faith and repentance will receive grace. And as Christians, we are to come to this throne in prayer. When we pray to the Father through the Son, we are coming before a throne. Do you realize that? We come to find help, to find mercy and grace in our time of need. We come to him in prayer knowing that we are coming before a throne. And since we are coming before a throne, there are a few ways that we should come. We must first come in complete submission. We must not come knowing who he is and who we are coming to. Knowing that he is our king and he, we are to submit to him and serve him as our Lord. And we must also come with boldness, as the text says. But why can we come with boldness? Because of all that has come before. Because he is our high priest who is interceding on our behalf. Because he is our advocate with the Father. We are no longer condemned when we come, but we are blameless in his eyes. And it's because of all that we read in the text that we can come boldly to this throne of grace. And as Hebrews 10, 23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful he who promises faithful, he is faithful to keep his promises even when we are not faithful. We have hope and joy knowing that all the promises of God have found their yes in Jesus Christ. And thanks be to God that this throne is no longer a throne of judgment for those who have faith in Christ. It is no longer a throne of law, but a throne of grace. This is God's unmerited favor towards us in Christ Jesus. We can come to this throne we can come with boldness because God has freely bestowed grace upon us. And it is at this throne of grace where God meets sinners through Jesus Christ on the basis of his propitiatory work on the cross. 
So come, church. Come to this throne. Come to this great high priest. Come to him who has paved the way for you to enter the throne room of God. Come boldly, come humbly. This child has saved you from your sin. This child has died in your place and has now reconciled you to God. This child is your great high priest. He is the mediator of an everlasting covenant with God. So whether hurting, broken, or lost, come to this throne of grace. Find help in your time of need. Do not go back to who you once were, but hold fast to Christ, because he is holding fast to you. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this time that we've been in your word. Thank you for the preaching of your word. Lord, may you convict us of sin, convict us of our indifference towards Christ, convict us of our lack of holding fast to him. Lord, may we all hold fast. May we all look to Christ who has done everything necessary to bring us to God, bring us to you, Lord. He is our great high priest, interceding on our behalf after he has made atonement for our sin. So, Lord, may we come boldly before you. May we come boldly. We pray for each and every person here as they go, go forth from here, Lord, that they may go forth as witnesses of Christ and what he has done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.